when pitching for bank, you definitely have to understand uh, who your customer is and also understand the timeline there of those types of partnerships. So it's not something that's going to happen really fast. And I think it's important to be ready for that. Hey guys, welcome back to the Back Self Show. This week, I'm really pumped to have someone I crossed paths with a long time ago, but she completely forgot me because I was completely forgettable. So, you know, uh, let's make it awkward straight away. Uh, this is Diana Biggs, who is the CEO of Valor. I have literally no idea what they do. I've tried to understand it, but she explains it much better. So let's just jump straight into it. So, hey, Diana, thanks for coming on. Tell me a bit about yourself and what Valor does. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm CEO of Valor. We're an issuer of exchange-traded products based on digital assets. So essentially, that means we are making products that are listed on regular traditional stock exchanges that you can buy just like you would any stock um, or share, but they are tracking um, cryptocurrencies, essentially. So it's, it's a way to buy exposure to a crypto asset, but without having to register or use a, a cryptocurrency platform. And, and this, this is appealing to investors who might be worried about signing up to different exchanges, have heard about different hacks, or who just want to easily buy and sell um, their exposure to crypto assets like, like they would with the, the rest of their portfolio, so via their, their bank or their broker. Um, so the, aim, the aim here is to make crypto investing more accessible and easier to do for different types of investors. Um, and in this case, ones that are usually use, using the traditional uh, mainstream investment channels. Amazing. Well, look, I am a crypto investor uh, as as of today, which is the we won't say what date it is for because we don't know when this goes out. But it's been a it's been a tough day. Um, but he, um, but uh, um, but yeah, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about this now. Of course, Dana, like you don't just that doesn't just happen. You don't just start that company because you're walking down the road and you thought it was a good idea. So let's. What's interesting about your story? When I want to go into it, is that you have made the transition from being on. Um, I call it like the buy side of startups. Like you were in the innovation side, like buying technology from startups in banks, and then you moved into running a startup yourself, whereas most people go the other way. Um, so you went from what I think is you know, the easy side to the hard side rather than the hard side to the easy side. So I massive respect there. So let's let's flip it back. So you, what, when did you first get into like innovation and you know, working with startups? Yeah, so I actually started working in tech in the 1990s, um, before there was a web. So my first job was with Nortel Technologies in 1994, building their internet sites. And that was a time when most, most people did not know what the internet was, and companies were looking at it as closed type of systems. So really, really intranets and wanting to understand how to use this new technology of the web for putting up internal information for their their organizations to access essentially. Um, so really closed loop systems. I had a company as well that was working in multimedia when I was in university. We won um, the small business grant from the city of Montreal. Um, when Congrats. I was at McGill, thank you. Um, so really, and I was also founder of a magazine. And so I was always really involved in a number of different entrepreneurial ventures and usually ones that were related, related to technology because of sort of this interest and this involvement in a technology community that I'd had since since the 90s, really going to what were sort of the first meetups before meetups were really a thing, um, which were for the 2600 Hacker Quarterly. Um, and that was really with 
people who are interested in emerging technologies and tinkering with technology to find um, new ways of working. So that was really there. We were looking at the early internet systems and phone systems typically, and then the convergence of the two, which of course brought the internet. Um, I ended up doing an MBA after working in sustainable development and technology um, use cases for that, which is what brought me over to London from Canada. And, and after my MBA, I was, well, while I was in my MBA, I was hired by Oliver Wyman Financial Services to work for um, most of the world's largest banks doing strategic consulting and advisory. I think because of my previous work in sustainability and technology, my preference there for project types were emerging markets or analyzing strategic opportunities for growth. Um, started a microfinance division at Oliver Wyman and yeah, really got interested in, in particular in Sub-Saharan Africa and the opportunity to use technology and financial services and the opportunity to use that technology to bring access to, to many more people who would have been excluded from the existing systems um, for a variety of different reasons. And when I left Oliver Wyman in 2012, I then decided to combine the, the, the number of interests in financial services and technology in emerging markets and was co-founder of a startup named Soko, which was an e-commerce business, um, working with artisans in East Africa and connecting them to consumers in the United States. Um, how did you, how did you, I mean, just, just, I mean, digging into that straight away. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's like, you, you glaze over, that sounds pretty impressive. So how did you even discover that that was a problem? Um, so that was kind of <laughs> how I found Soko is a bit of a funny story because it was really at this moment in time where I, you know, I had quit this job, which was considered a, a really great job. And yeah, Oliver Wyman is great. Lasted, yeah. lasted for a long time. Um, you know, I had been there almost five years. I was really enjoying it, but I had this pull to go back into technology. It's, it's nice. sort of, it, it's what I, it's what sort of my social life always <laughs> was a part of, or like my interest and in what I would work in. Um, all three of my brothers are, you know, software developers, and we kind of we really grew up, yeah, as being part of like a family that was made fun of for always being on our computers when that wasn't really a thing that people did. And and I think that I was always regretted the fact that I was only taking sort of computer science as electives and not as my main degree, but maybe I got socialized out of it. I'm not sure what the reason was that I didn't pursue it as my, as my studies and go into it full time. Um, but I think I was looking for that purpose angle in which I could use technology for, which is yeah. what led me into sustainability and working in technology there. Um, but essentially, so I, I had done, had had my whole career in London since I was um, posted there by Foreign Affairs after my undergrad. I ended up going to New York City because I thought that would be an interesting place to live and where the technology scene was getting bigger. So this would be around um, 2012, 2013. Um, and wasn't quite ready to live or didn't really, like I personally didn't really see much appeal in San Francisco. Uh, that's a topic and another conversation um well it's rubbish now so like yeah maybe in 2001 but now it's awful yeah so like you know great choice <laughs> i've never been a massive fan um but it was it was actually 
difficult to know or to find the right fit as a strategy consultant, as someone who knew technology, but I didn't necessarily have the product proof on my CV. Um, I also had this desire to do something that was more purpose-led. I had just been living and working um, in Sub-Saharan Africa for a number of clients with Oliver Wyman. And then when I quit, I did a six-month fellowship in West Africa for Kiva, setting up some new projects in social enterprise for them um, in Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone. And so I had this sort of attachment and desire to do things that went beyond just the United States, which can be tr a tricky find when you're working in the United States. So I actually ended up, I was working actually for a management consulting firm and we were doing some interesting projects, but they weren't necessarily technology focused enough. And I was trying to decide whether I wanted to start something or not. And I Googled, I think like Africa design, startup technology and ended up finding this basically a landing page for a company that at the time was called Sasa Africa. Um, just reached out to them, asked for a Skype call, had a Skype call with two of the founders, first with one, and then she introduced me to, to another and basically um, was interested in what they were doing, which was working with artisans and trying to make a scalable model that, that would help them to cut out the middleman and create essentially fair or more transparent and more direct models for international trade. Um, they were focused specifically on jewelry. I actually had a, an undergraduate degree in architecture. I was interested in the design elements as well. So I offered to help them um, just pro bono at first on this on the side of my management consulting role because I thought it was fun and interesting and I hadn't really found a fit that was a full-time opportunity in a startup that that I would want to join um and within two months I became their chief strategy officer um and essentially there you go. a co-founder co role you know and we rebranded the company gave it a new name gave it a new business model um really actually transformed it quite a bit um during during the year that I was there I ended up leaving after a year um but that's because I went down the crypto rabbit hole there we go there we go I love that what a great story good message good story there about you know uh you know, starting off doing something for free and then just seeing if you like it. And then of course the opportunities come, right? It's a, it's a good way to do it. So yeah, you know, I, I do have mixed feelings about that. And sometimes I, you know, I wonder like, was that the right choice? I probably wasn't maybe aggressive enough many times in my career in terms of like what I would accept. And I do feel like I have a tendency to say yes, or to want to help and, and have done a lot of these sort of free pro bono projects. And I don't know if that was that's also coming from. I mean, I was coming from areas where that tended to be the norm. So working in sustainability and international development, you tend to to have to do these sort of internships or work projects where you're not necessarily compensated. Yeah. And then architecture is also like that, where a lot of architects just have to participate in competitions and essentially do these entire designs for free and and not really know what's going to come out of it. Um, I don't, it's not, it's not a great model, but sometimes I guess it, it's what you have to do, particularly when you're making um, a career transition or when you're just hitting a brick wall where people don't want to necessarily recognize or value your worth. Or if you have a story that's not straightforward, I've found, I think that it's, I 
think that it's getting better for, for people like this, but certainly a question, like I always get hit with a lot of questions, particularly with more traditional types of employers about the fact that my CV is very varied. Um, yeah, I think if it wasn't for the individual who hired me into HSBC, I don't like, I don't think that I would ever have been considered a normal fit or able to join there. And he, he specifically was looking for my FinTech experience and had also come from a background that combined management consulting, working at the UN, instrument development, uh, as well as um, working for venture back startups. And, and that is, that is an odd and unusual path. And I think that, yeah, I just got lucky that it resonated with someone. Well, like I'm, um, I'm going to um, going to support you here, but also I have uh, some good respect from a guy called Elon Musk who just said publicly that if you're a polymath, then that's the best career you can have. People who work in multiple different sectors are the people who ultimately um, are the ones that succeed. I think when we we get a lot of startups on here, and it's very rare that you find someone who has been a particularly successful founder because they've just been through a linear route. So what they've done is they've just been like, oh, I worked at PwC, I left there, I started a, an accountancy product, and then yeah, it's gone really well from there. This tends to not be, they tend to get vanilla success. Whereas if you find people who have worked in multiple different sectors, then they cross-pollinate those ideas, and then that's what makes something better. Um, you know, patting myself on the back. I've never worked in esports before, and we're the fastest growing esports platform on the planet. So that's my mic drop right there. If people can see this on the on the thing, that's me just bragging. Yeah, really openly. I'm happy to admit it. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's a. Um, I think that's a, I think that's something to be really commendable, and I'd recommend that to any founder. So you went to HSBC, where you worked in innovation. Um, hugely diverse opinions on innovation about whether it is the uh, the place where startups go to have their deals destroyed or it's the place they go to have their deals created um so what did you do when you were there i put a lot of pressure on you there put a lot of pressure on there <laughs> so when i when i first joined it was to start an innovation team for the retail bank with a particular focus on uk and europe in the uk hsbc has three brands um first direct which is much loved um and yeah. sort of one of the first or the first challenger bank as many would say um mns bank and then of course the the red brand the the regular hsbc brand um that was one of the reasons that I, that I even agreed to join a bank. I mean, I was had already been working in cryptocurrency for three years at the time, and I uh, I thought the bank bank would be the last place that I would go. But that was a unique opportunity to be able to start an innovation team from scratch and really make it what we wanted it to be. And the focus there was very much on partnering with fintechs and how to support the fintech community. And really, the, the idea there was that someone coming from a fintech background would be able to be this translator between the the two worlds i suppose um having been a strategic advisor to boards and c-suites and executives in financial institutions and then also knowing what it's like on the other side to be trying to build a, a growing startup and looking at innovation i think what was particularly important was that the vision for that team from my manager as well was that it would be actually testing and learning in real time with, with real customers and wind on new propositions that we could build and create that would add value versus, you know, just throw, I mean, this was also an important part, but throwing events and doing internal education, et cetera, that, that all became an important part of the job, but it wasn't really um, the, the original mandate or, or what, 
what would only be part of it. So it certainly wasn't um, just to do PR. We wanted to try to make, and we we did make sort of new propositions and partnerships, and um, and really for the the focus and the strategic um, imperative on digitalization, really of financial services. Amazing, amazing. In the current climate, marketing is hard, but do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So right now, advice time. Diana, I want to get some uh, some in secret intel here. Right, okay, there's a lot of people who listen to this who are starting fintech companies and they're going to try and get in with innovation teams at banks. How do the people get noticed with people like you in a bank? When pitching for bank, you definitely have to understand uh, who your customer is and also understand the, the timelines there of those types of partnerships. So it, it's not something that's going to happen really fast. And I think it's important to be ready for that. Um, and it's important to know who you're talking to and what their motivations are, also whether or not they have any decisioning power and trying to get that um, to be as upfront in, in the conversation as possible in terms of whether they will be able to implement on something or, or just run a test. So even if you are with someone who you know just really does want to support a FinTech and want to get you through the door, I would really focus on getting them to get decision makers in the room that that you can then convince and who will have the ability to to carry it forward um, and also understand where and how that sits within a budgeting process, how much budget is available and what they're really looking to achieve from it, whether it how whether and how it fits into their strategic visions and the their growth priorities for the area of business that they're working in. I think that like knowing, trying to find out as much about that from the beginning will just help you understand how much effort to put into that particular relationship and, and that project. Because as I said, it, just with the, with the onboarding, with the amount of meetings and the amount of education that usually comes around a new type of proposition, there, it will take a lot of, um, it'll be quite resource intensive. To, to make that type of partnership work and to, to carry itself over the line. So you, you want to really be sure that you're, you're also investing your time into something that has more potential. Um, at the same time, then it can obviously be very big. I think having those types of big names on board, um, if you've worked with one bank, it tends to attract attention of the others. Um, so it, it can be something that can really transform your trajectory as well. 100%. What are some of the red flags that you see? So when people come in and you're like, oh, these guys, they are going to fuck this up if they keep doing this. Like, what are some of the things where you see people who are coming to the bank and they're trying to get themselves engaged? Is it they're going to the wrong departments first? Is it that they, I mean, what's, what is it, a, a typical mistake that people make that they think is the right way to do things, but really isn't? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think it's hard and, and it probably really varies depending on um, the type of, department and, and project you're you're working for. I mean, we I worked across so many different areas of technology and fintech types. Um, and sometimes it it is hard to, to know what's the best approach. Like if you should I think people who are really pushy and saying like we want 
you to commit that you're going to spend this much before doing a sort of POC. Yeah. Um, while I, f- I feel like this might be contradictory to what I just said, it can also mean that like, that's just not possible to do um, because we're, we're not going to do that. I think um, like, I guess I haven't really thought about this for a while. So I don't know. I, 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 you know, it probably depends on what type of team you're working for and just understanding where, where they're going with it. But um, definitely you have to find the the right stakeholder. And if somebody is saying like, um, no, this is something that, that we're already doing, I, it can probably be a possibility or it could be that they need to talk to a team that that's more, more willing to experiment but um yeah i think it's difficult because the organizations yeah. are so big and there's there can be so many different gatekeepers um and and it really depends on what type of technology you're you're selling but i think that it's better to be humble and to really listen as well versus thinking oh like banks don't understand this or this type of innovation we, we they actually typically really do and are well aware of what's happening in the market and um some things just are or aren't a fit. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. Certainly in my experience, I think um, the the piece of advice I always give to anyone who's trying to sell to a bank is don't forget that you're still selling to a person. If you find someone in that organization who's been in the same role for 20 years, they're probably not looking for change. They're probably just looking to just keep going what they're doing and wait for their pension if you find someone who's constantly getting promoted they're probably much more likely to want to bring in new technology to try and help them get further up and change things and i think people make the mistake of not thinking enough about the character not thinking enough about the person they're interacting with thinking too much about the bank's objectives rather than the personal objectives of that person because if you have someone in that organization who is you know trying to look great and trying to find reasons to make themselves look impressive they're going to try and make changes and people forget about that would be my advice yeah, you might tell me now I'm completely wrong though. So that's uh, and then I've ruined my career. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I I think it depends because I think I think there are a lot of you know ambitious, well-intentioned people there as well, but who who might not have any decisioning power or who might not actually. Well, that's true. Yeah, interact- that is true. And the sort of the multiple layers of challenge that that area actually has in order to implement that type of solution. Um, so so it can be hard because I think I think you need a mix of both. You need the people who actually understand really deeply how a certain system works or doesn't work. And then you also need people who are looking to to transform it. And and I don't think that yeah, it's not always sort of the way that there's one one is stuck in an, in another just because of the, the number of years, I think. So yeah, I think that that's all sort of part of the, the conversation and you'll need to work with both. Probably, I mean, because yeah, it's very rare. I would say it's probably never that you'll be working with one counterpart oh, at, at a bank. Yeah. Maybe thirty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it was Gartner. They did a study and they said on average, it's seven people have to sign off on something to make it happen in a in a retail bank. You know, and that's that would be would be a good. That'd be that'd be the dream. That'd be great. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's let's move on there. So you you know I, what what did you what was the problem that you saw in the world when you decided to start Valor? Like what was that trigger point that made you say, do you know what, I want to be I want to be a founder again. I've done it before. I've got the bug. I want to get back in the game. Well, for me, I I really wanted to get back into crypto. It had it was an area that that's actually why I left Soco. That's why I left New York and came back to London um, early twenty fourteen. 
it was an investor who asked me to to come back and look at building out a cryptocurrency exchange. We didn't end up going ahead with that project directly. It's in another sort of shape today. But through that opportunity, I was able to become um, really well acquainted with the very early crypto community, um, the people that were you know working on. Bitcoin's core development with the Ethereum founders, with many different types of projects and exchange wow. founders and, and players in that space. And it, it was a very small ecosystem across those years, up until I would say sort of 2016, 2017, um, which is also 2017 being when, when I left and joined HSBC, it just got a bit um, frothy with the ICO boom. Um, so I've, I've been really... What is that? Sorry, the I- ICO? ICO boom. Um, in 2017, a, a lot of people were launching these ICOs, which are these initial coin offerings. So there was a lot of new projects and new tokens coming out in the crypto space that people were selling tokens for their various projects and, and raising uh, millions up to billions with. But it was really hard to distinguish what was uh, a real project. Effectively, affectionately known they as... They yeah. white paper. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Affectionately known as uh, shit coins, I believe. That's the uh, what they refer to as. Yeah, plenty of shit <laughs> coins. And, um, yeah, just a really strange energy in the space. And um, You're like, let's... Yeah. yeah, I needed a break. Um, but really, I was waiting for the right opportunity to, to come back as well because it is just a, such a fascinating area and such an interesting group of people. Um, and so, yeah, so it was really about waiting for the right, the right role and the right project, a project that, um, I could feel like I could authentically get behind and one that would have a, a role that would be at the, the right level for me. And that would, would be a good fit, which, you know, I think for senior level positions that, that really takes time. Um, and that's the type of area where net, like networking and having that network. So for example, this role was someone who I've known for about seven years from this space and, um, you know, maintaining those types of relationships and being open to, to things that, that come, come your way. And, and, and also here, it's like, a, it's a mix of traditional finance because ETPs, regulated stock exchanges, that that's all, um, sort of the way things exist today, but then merging that with cryptocurrency. So having that experience on both sides um, of those worlds uh, also helps as well. I love that look. It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's an area where every time someone says to me that they're involved in crypto early on, I'm so jealous. I'm like, damn it. The one thing everyone wants to be in crypto is an earlier adopter than they were. Yeah, so I was like, oh, if only I got in a year earlier. Oh, if only I got in, yeah, six months earlier, I'd be a casquillionaire. Um, I love that. So you, um, so uh, the key message there, which I love to hear, is that you were saying the the. Ultimately, it was your network that allowed you to be in the fortunate position you're in now to be able to found this company. And you'd been building that network over a long period of time, even though you'd gone away to different sectors, you still maintain contact and kept in that space. So when the opportunity, the right opportunity arose, you were in the right space. And I think a lot of people think that when you're starting a company, that has to be right now. Yep. Whereas actually the reality of it is like you, you can be patient, you can wait for it to come because then the right opportunity will come up eventually. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and I think 
you know, it's important to realize how long it takes to build a company and how much of your life it consumes. So for me, it was important that it's a team and a project that, that I know that I can feel committed to and really be part of. And I think that that was the same way for, for Soko and, and yeah, it, it's like, it's just such an intense commitment that, that you really want to, when everything feels like it's falling apart, um, feel sure about why you're doing it and understand that, you know, it's not, it's not like an, another type of job where you could just walk away because yeah. ultimately, especially in a senior role, you're in charge of, of a lot of other people's livelihoods and, and careers as well. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, right. We're coming to that final part of the show where I have three questions, which I'm going to ask you quick fire, please. Well, not quick fire, but you know, short response. So we create your poster quote, which you can put out there. Um, so the first one is, what advice would you give to yourself if you were, it's 10 years earlier and you're just starting out on that founder career, what advice would you give yourself that you wish you had? I wish I had been more... I guess uh, I would say assertive, but um, yeah, I suppose active about getting a role in the types of projects that I was helping versus like, say in early crypto, there was a lot of projects that are very big now that I was very involved in, but I wasn't really trying to put it as a, as a stamp or say that this is what I feel I should be part of. So it's, I think, I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly, but I get, I suppose like, as I was saying before, like helping out a project for free and, and saying, and just saying, I don't need a role yet or whatnot, that, that can be good to get you in the door. But I think then that there has to be a time where you stop and actually make those demands that, that you have, or say, look, I've contributed. I'm actually contributing this. I'm making a difference. This is my, this is what I'm doing. And so please, like, give me the title. And I think that's, that's smart with those types of projects and with things about like finding where you can make the contribution, but then also making sure that that's clearly part of, of your career history and CV as well. I love that. I think that's really good advice. Um, second question, what was, um, so that was your, I guess we're kind of leading into this a little bit, we kind of had there. So that was the advice you give yourself to do to, to, to every founder, you know, to be more assertive and make sure that you you get the value out of all of those projects you take part of. What is one mistake that you see people make constantly within, you know, both when you're on both sides of the table as someone working with startups and someone who is a founder that you wish people wouldn't make? Um, I think hi like hiring and underestimating how long it will take to hire the right people in the team, like, and how critical it is. So really, and this is like as a, as a CEO, hiring and trying to find the right people and being also flexible about what those people might do or be um, and being kind of constantly on the lookout for talent. I think that could be done more just from what I've seen. I think sometimes people can get very fixed in terms of boxes or what type of um, person or resource they want to look for. And if you maintain a flexibility that's more around what are the, the tasks at hand and then seeing how somebody can contribute to the growth at different phases, 
I think that's really important. That also takes self-awareness on both sides of the fence. Um, so I've seen candidates who could have been good lose out because they really wanted to stick hard to a number or they, they just lacked self-awareness around where their limitations were. Um, that would make them say more a CTO than a CEO. Um, and also in terms of the, the hiring and, and what people are looking for, and especially with different types of CVs and different types of backgrounds, I think there's a lot of talent that's missed out on because people think they're looking for a certain thing. And, and I'm not sure why, because of specific paradigms that they have in their mind or um, previous examples or their own experience. So I think that both both sides can do better about what type of roles and how they accept those and what type of talent people are are finding and how key that is actually to the success of your company, particularly at an early stage. I love that. I love that so much, Tana. You were absolutely 100% on the same page. I think you always need to have a pipeline of candidates. You need to hire people based on who they are, not necessarily what you think they should be. Um, and I think that's uh, that's great advice. Okay, last one for you. You are, I, th I always think founders are the most productive people because they have to do so many things. You have, you, you seem to be doing an inordinate amount of things in lots of different areas. It's incredibly impressive. Like I said, you are, you know, one of the 35 most powerful women in tech. I mean, it's incredible. Um, <laughs> as we've already established, you know, you're a big name. Um, <laughs> so what is, um, what is your, what is your tip or hack for productivity? I guess right now, like, you know, now we're all sort of getting back in the office and things like, you know, people are starting to have burnout and so forth, but productivity is always going to be a paramount that people can get that if you're going to be successful as a founder. So what is your hack for that or your top piece of advice? I don't have any children. I mean, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think that this is an area that I've really nailed. Um, You're the first person I've ever heard who's a founder to actually admit that. Everyone else is always like, yeah. I mean, what I do is I eat six oranges first thing in the morning and I have 100 milliliters of caffeine and now I've nailed it. They're always like that. They're so specific. I love you. Be like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I would love to be able to balance you know, a family or a social life with a career, but it seems that I'm really unbalanced and um, <laughs> trying to get better at it. Hence <laughs> the hiring. So definitely hire people uh, so that yeah, you're yeah. not just constantly um, working. And um, yeah, a lot of people talk about meditation. That would be great. And probably I could find those 10 minutes. I need to do that. Exercise, I think too, that gives you then more energy and you apparently sleep better. So I'm going to try that one day too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try that one day. I love it. Like, like, you've, been, you've been amazing. I've loved this so much. You just, uh, you, you're full of wisdom. I'm super pumped about it, uh, about what you're doing as well as someone who is, you know, heavily leveraged in the crypto space. So uh, exciting that you're doing things there. Um, and look, congrats on your success. And thank you so much for coming on the show and giving your advice. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>